you look at the way that biblical characters grieve, you never see stoicism ever in the Bible. When Job loses his kids, he just he tears his clothes and falls on the ground and just weeps and just just sits there in agony. And we know he's he's not sinning and charging God with wrong. He's not blaming God, but he's feeling it deeply. Why? It hurts as much as it's worth. You know, if your car breaks down, that hurts. It's a, it's, it's a nuisance. But if you lose a child. If you lose your dad, it hurts as much as it's worth. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Joe Rigney. Joe serves as Assistant Professor of Theology and Literature at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He's also a pastor at Cities Church and the author of a number of books, including Strangely Bright, Can You Love God and Enjoy This World? from Crossway. Today, Joe and I discuss why it's okay to celebrate God's good gifts. He explains the impact that John Piper and Christian hedonism have had on his life and theology, the proper place of self-denial in the Christian life, and how to navigate the tension of loving God and enjoying his good gifts. Let's get started. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Happy to be back. So uh, you write something early on in your book that I thought was pretty interesting and would love to hear you comment on it. Uh, You write, God is radically God-centered. He does everything that he does for the sake of his name, for his glory. And I think some Christians listening right now, that kind of language, that kind of talking about God probably feels pretty familiar and feels pretty normal. But I, my guess is that there are other Christians listening right now who, for them, that language is a little bit uncomfortable and maybe even a little bit distasteful to them. So I wonder, uh, what would you say to that, to the Christian listening who, to, to kind of start off a book with that view of God is a little bit unsettling? Yeah, I think um, at one level, you know, it's a, this is a Bible question. So before we can really uh, address that, you have to decide, am I a Bible person or not? And if you are a Bible person, then you're going to have to wrestle with all of the passages that say that the Lord does everything he does um, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his glory, um, so that the people will know that I am the Lord, that God um, seems very concerned that people recognize uh, him as the creator and sustainer of all things and as the greatest treasure in the universe. Um, and so obviously I'm uh, kind of coming in the wake there in, in recent years of uh, John Piper. Um, I teach at Bethlehem College and Seminary where he's the chancellor. Um, and so um, Christian hedonism and the notion that God is most glorified in us or when I'm most satisfied in him um, is, is central to how I'm approaching all of these, all of these things. And so the first thing is going to be, are you a Bible person? Okay, then you've got these verses. And then the second is, okay, now if you've got to the point where you can say, um, okay, I see it, it's there. And, you know, we could walk through all of those texts. Um, I see it, it's there. Um, now what do I do with the emotional side of that? Like, okay, it yeah. still strikes me as a little bit odd. And, uh, and this is a place where I think, you know, Pastor John has been incredibly helpful in trying to um, bring together that, 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 um, it's not an oppositional thing. It's not like if God pursues his glory, he's not pursuing your good or your joy or your ultimate happiness, but that it's in precisely pursuing his own glory that you're most satisfied. 
And so, um, and so because for most of us, and, and this is true, I think probably in, in many cases uh, in our own experience, if I'm pursuing, if I'm wanting myself to look good, it means I'm wanting somebody else to, you know, be dismissed or, or rejected. Um, but God is the sort of being who says, uh, I'm going to pursue my own glory. How? By satisfying my people with my presence. Um, and so it's, it's good news that God is radically God-centered precisely because the way that he glorifies himself is by supremely satisfying his uh, people. So that's where I would go to try to help someone who sees it in the Bible but is uncomfortable with it. That'd be the first place. Mm. So why do you think it is that for so many Christians, I would say so many evangelical Christians probably listening right now, this can be such an uncomfortable realization or uncomfortable truth that we do see in scripture in a number of places pretty clearly. Why do we struggle emotionally to embrace this truth? And is there something unique about, you know, modern day American evangelicalism that might predispose us against this kind of thing? Yeah, so one one answer would would have to do with human sinfulness. Um, we we resist the idea that there is something above us, um, and this is just one expression of that something above us. Um, and so, um, wanting to be the center, or or wanting to be supreme, um, wanting to pursue our own good above all, um, that's kind of a natural human bent. And therefore, here's God coming in in his word and saying, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's what sin is, is valuing other things more than God. In fact, um, one of my, one, one of the passages that, that really, I think, captures this well is in Jeremiah, where in Jeremiah chapter two, um, he says, um, be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly dismayed. My people have committed two great evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So their ultimate evil is forsaking God, who's the fountain, this all-satisfying fountain, and trying to dig around in the mud um, for some satisfaction. But but the interesting thing, um, well, lots of interesting things, but but one of them is that initial part where he says, "Be appalled, O heavens! Be shocked!" Um, and it seems as though the prophet is addressing, you know, perhaps the angels. And and there's this sense of like that the angels are going to have their their mouths are going to drop open when they see human beings valuing other things higher than God, and they're just going to, they can't believe it. They're just going to, like, it's gaping and open-mouthed horror. Like, how can they do that? Um, and the prophet is sort of giving voice to that, that sentiment, um, which just tells us that our resistance to the idea, I'm not the fountain, other things aren't the fountain, God's the fountain. Um, our resistance to the notion that God is the supreme fountain, and he knows it and loves it, um, is something that is uh, peculiar to a fallen race and that the holy angels sit there and go, well, of course, of course that is this way. Um, and so there's something out of order. So that's one, one piece of it. I think there's a sinfulness uh, dimension. The other, though, is really, I think, a, uh, a confusion, perhaps, um, about the notion that um, God, in order for God to pursue his own glory, it means that he doesn't really care about us. Okay? And I think that there's a real and legitimate, this isn't, this isn't the sinful desire, could become sinful, but it's not necessarily sinful. The legitimate desire we have to be valued, to be treasured, to be um, loved. And the Bible does speak to that. It, it, you know, we're, we're called, Israel was God's treasured possession among all the nations. And then that 
same language is then applied to the church. Um, you know, fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's a good father, um, and he does value us. We're the um, the lost sheep that he goes after, leaves the 99 and goes after the one, uh, the lost coin that the widow searches for, the father who waits for the prodigal son. All those, all those parables that Jesus tells are designed to communicate to us. God really does love and treasure and value you, but he doesn't love and treasure and value you supremely because that would be to lie and to commit idolatry. Instead, it's because of his own valuing of himself that then he's inclined to share all of his fullness with you, to invite you into it. And so I think uh, to the degree that we put him in opposition, like I, if God loves himself, he doesn't, he's not really interested in me. He's got, he's got other irons in the fire. He's got better things to do. He's sort of indifferent. Then we're gonna emotionally recoil from that truth. But to the degree that we see his love and grace and mercy for us flowing out of his commitment to magnify himself, then we're going to feel loved by his God-centeredness. Um, and, and we're going to feel that, that sense of he treasures me because in, in making me his treasured possession and in satisfying my soul and in my glorifying of him through my worship and through my life, um, he's supremely honored. All of these things come together, and so it's it's good news, not bad news. Now, maybe going back to this term, Christian hedonism, which you threw out there, uh, as m- probably many listeners know, that's a term that John Piper, I believe, coined and is pretty famous for. And you studied under Piper at Bethlehem College and Seminary. I wonder, do you remember the first time you heard him use that term, and what was your initial reaction to that? Because I know it can be somewhat controversial uh, among certain circles. Yeah, so uh, I actually heard it in college before I ever moved to Minneapolis. I was at Texas a and This is probably back in 2000, 2001. And uh, someone had recommended, uh, recommended, hey, you ought to listen to this Piper guy. So I, I think I probably listened to a sermon first. And uh, I think I, these were back in the days. I, I think I actually, this was before Desiring God was a real, you know, robust website. Um, I was downloading Piper sermons on Napster. So that, that's, uh, that will date me, I guess. Uh, and so, um, and I remember hearing him and what I felt was, uh, that he was giving vocabulary to, uh, inclinations, hints in my own prayer life. So in some ways I was a Christian hedonist because the Psalms made me one. Okay. So delight yourself in the Lord, um, Lord, my God, my God, you know, uh, um, I search for you, I seek for you as a dry and weary land where there is no water. So my soul faints for you. Um, All of that language of desiring God, of of pursuing satisfaction in God at your, you know, right hand or pleasures forevermore. All of those things were just a part of my prayer life because I prayed Psalms as a high school student and a freshman in college. And so then here comes Piper. And basically what he did was kind of give it really deep um, theological and biblical roots. Like, here's why it's that way. And really, I think, brought in that, and this is how you glorify God. This isn't just you pursuing your satisfaction. This is how you glorify God. And so that happened in uh, 2001 uh, as I was listening to sermons, and it was kind of a world-shaking, almost a second conversion um, because the Bible broke open, and all of a sudden there was layers and depths that I hadn't had never seen or considered. Um, and so that kind of set me on a, on a path. Uh, is why I ended, That's why I ended up in Minneapolis um, to come to seminary, uh, and then why I've stayed now for 15 years 
um, and I'm a, a professor uh, here as well, um, was because I, I, I believe that. I don't think it's a, it's not a Piper thing. It's a Bible thing. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think Piper, you know, gives voice to it. Uh, and in a very kind of, gen, you know, once in a generation kind of, of uh, articulator and herald of the truth. But he's going to be the first to say this is as old as the Bible and, uh, and that there have been numerous Christian theologians who have given voice to it to one degree or another, maybe not with the same emphasis that he does. Um, and then I've kind of viewed my own project in some ways uh, as an extension of it as a trying to fill out in, in particular areas where, where, um, you know, John has, has focused and has kind of had that one Christian hedonist. God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in him that he's going around with that kind of as the core. And I'm saying yes and amen. And then what does that look like in these other particular areas? Yeah. And what, what are some of those areas that you feel like, uh, need fleshing out, need clarification, maybe even for, you know, the generation of Christians who have been so influenced by Piper, you know, it's often said that, you know, a great visionary leader will have this kind of clear conception that they're trying to focus on. And then that next generation can sometimes lose some of the nuance, lose some of the fullness of you know, the, the originator of, um, of some of those ideas or the, the summarizer of those ideas. So what would you say are some of those things that you're hoping you can flesh out for people? Yeah, so the mission statement of, of Bethlehem Baptist Church and the College and Seminary begins with, we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And I would say that, you know, John has accented the supremacy of God, um, and, he, and he'll say, in all things, and then my, I think, I think it's a personality thing as much as anything else, I get real interested in the all things. Um, how? How is God supreme in my eating and my drinking, in my, um, you know, raising of my children, in my, you know, coaching Little League Baseball? Like, how is God, if he's supreme in all things, I want to know how, and I want to push it into the corners. And so uh, Things of Earth, which came out, you know, about five years ago now, and now this, this newer project, Strangely Bright, are both attempts to kind of press Christian hedonism into the corners of the all things, uh, in a way that says, okay, this it's not it's not a simple question, um, and it's it's not simple. How do you enjoy the gifts of God without turning them into idols? Um, and how do you um, resist the temptation um, to be so nervous about the things of earth that you don't enjoy them at all because you're worried that they're going to be idols? Right? That it's a there's ditches on both sides of that road. You can either be idolatrous or you can be ungrateful. Um, and this is, again, a place where the Bible seems to speak directly to it. This is in Romans chapter 1. Paul identifies the two fundamental sins of human beings as they didn't honor God as God, that's idolatry, nor give thanks. There's ingratitude. And so in one case, you're elevating the gifts above the giver. In the other case, you're not even receiving the gifts. And uh, and so I think both of those are ditches, and I'm, I'm trying to steer a course uh, in these in these various books and, and articles and everything else, uh, to try to figure out how to try to help people. Um, once you've settled biblically and experientially, God is supreme, and so you feel good praying things like, "Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire besides you." So you 
really want to pray that and can authentically pray, nothing on earth I desire besides you. Um, you know, your love is better than life. When you pray those things, and then now you have to go, well, I've still got all these things, right? I've still got my house. I've still got my family. I've still got my friends. I've still got my hobbies. I've still got my labor, my work. Um, so I'm saying I desire nothing. I don't desire any of those compared to my desiring of God. Great. Now what do you do with them? And my my book is an attempt. My books are an attempt to answer that question faithfully. That tries to steer a course between those two ditches. So as you think about you know the generation of Christians who have learned from Piper, who have imbibed this Christian hedonism language and ethos, do you think that they're in in your experience more prone to fall onto one of those two ditches? Is is there a particular ditch that you think seems to be more uh, dangerous for? You know, people who have kind of already uh, really assented to these ideas have embraced these ideas. Yeah, um, I'm not sure that there's a, a greater ditch. I think it is going to be very context specific. So when um, I think, uh, you know, maybe one way to put it is I know that for for Piper, um, his target is kind of you know modern evangelical Christians who are very comfortable in in sort of living the American dream. And so his his goal is to kind of come drop this Christian hedonist bomb into their, their nice orderly world um, and say, um, do you love God more than money? Um, do, you, do you really, you know, do, does, does your life reflect the kind of sacrifice um, and sacrificial love and generosity and self-denial that Jesus demands? Or are you just kind of going with the worldly flow? And so he kind of comes in and drops that, and therefore there's a um, an ascetic tendency and tendency in that, um, a kind of um, you know deny yourself, deny yourself, deny yourself, which is biblical and faithful. Um, and then I think this is the danger: is that then people are going to come after that, or they're going to hear that, and they're going to say, "I see it in the Bible," and then they're going to feel stuck. You know, they're going to all of a sudden all of their um, earthly goods and their earthly relationships are going to feel like a hot potato and there's going to be a kind of hesitance. And so I would say I'm targeting that person, um, the person who really has embraced supremacy of God in all things, but is really laboring under this um, often kind of a, a vague sense of false guilt. I think this was my story. This is part of what I felt. This is what I've encountered in other people is a sense of um, it's, it's bad because it's not God, which isn't true. It's good because it's not God. It's just not God. Right? Something can be good and not God because he's the good um, from whence all other goods come. He's the, he's the good that makes all other goods good. And, uh, and so, but they are really good, but they're dangerous. And we want to be wise and faithful in how we enjoy them. Uh, and so I'm, I am targeting that, that person kind of um, you know, coming in behind in the wake of, of Piper and saying, hey, I know that some of you uh, are feeling a certain kind of low-grade guilt constantly, um, that it's distorting your relationships with those that you love in really kind of odd ways that you can't quite put your finger on. Um, and, uh, and I want to try to help that. Um, but it also means that I, I suspect that in, anybody coming you know, in my wake uh, is going to have maybe that other problem to deal with. And I think this is part of the you know, Luther has that great quote where, you know, humanity is like a drunken peasant. You know, as soon as you push him off of, you know, push him up, 
you know, he's going to fall off the other side of the horse and then you push him back up and he's going to fall off the other side of the horse. And kind of the, the task of pastors and theologians through the ages is to be aware of, of the ditches and to try to do as best we can to keep the, keep the peasant on the horse. <laughs> well, that's such a powerful, uh, as most of Luther's pictures are, this is a powerful picture of what it's like. I, I think one of the tricky things that I know I have felt about this is just, uh, it seems like we are so easily deceiving of ourselves. We so uh, easily get off track, even when we have the best intentions and we think we're doing okay. And so I guess I, I wonder if um, others would resonate with this question. When you look at the whole scope of Scripture and the constant warnings against idolatry, and then we look at our own lives and we you know realize that there's no, there's probably no Christian or very few real Christians out there who have thought to themselves, you know, rather than worship Jesus above all else, I really want to idolize money or sex or food. Uh, And yet we all fall into that so quickly and so easily. So I guess the question is, is it really wise to emphasize the idea of enjoying God's good gifts when we're all so prone to that self-deception and idolatry? Wouldn't it be better to lean towards the idea of as you mentioned, kind of an asceticism, a putting away of these earthly pleasures uh, so that we can focus better on Christ. Yeah. Um, I think that that's definitely been a tendency in the history of the church. Um, I think that the, you know, many of the great theologians prior to the Reformation, they're all monks. Um, and so that monastic and ascetic tendency is certainly there in Augustine and others. Um, I think the danger of it, um, well, one danger very clearly biblically is um, that to treat God's good creation as though it was, uh, as though it was, um, a bad thing, right? So to, you know, um, is according to Paul, the teaching of demons, right? Um, and that they're so, um, or in Colossians two, he talks about the, the kind of asceticism that was, uh, you know, packaged with a bunch of other stuff, angel worship and things, but the do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, um, kind of, uh, approach to the Christian life. And he says, this is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he says, this is a dead end, um, that kind of full-on asceticism. It doesn't mean that certain kinds of asceticism or a certain ascetic bent is demonic or ineffective. But it does mean that you, that there is a, a way, and it's a way that's in the Bible and that shows up frequently in the church, that that's a dead end. And, uh, and so um, and then the flip side is you're never going to thin creation out enough. If, if your goal is, I need to thin out my enjoyment of earthly goods, you're all, there's, you, somebody can always go thinner, right? And, and, you, and you end up, you know, um, one of the monks living on a pillar in the middle of the, in the, middle of the, the Egyptian desert, um, and people are, you know, running up moldy bread to you and some water, and, that's, and, and, and even that guy is still going to feel like, yeah, but, but could I do a little bit more? And, uh, and I think the danger there is that it is really a, a rejection of creation as creation and not simply a rejection of, I say, idolatry or, um, you know, false enjoyment. Uh, and so um, God, we're commanded everywhere in the scriptures to be grateful. So be grateful for what? Is it, is it merely the spiritual blessings? Um, well, no, there's, there's, it's, it's grateful always and for everything. All of the things you need to say thank you for. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the chapters in Strangely Bright um, is basically a look at, at Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, 
where we see God sort of lavishing his creatures with um, relational pleasures, meaning sort of Adam and Eve and sort of the pleasures that we have in relationship with each other. Um, physical pleasures, so the trees and, and the visual glory of, the, of creation. Uh, and so all the pleasure we take in with our senses. And then vocational pleasures. He gives them a job. He gives them a mission. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, guard the garden. Um, and so those three, physical pleasures, relational pleasures, and vocational pleasures, um, that's God's intent. That's, what, that's how humanity was meant to live in the body, um, you know, with bodies engaging in the world that God made. And then we, it's distorted, but we need to get back to the goodness underneath it, um, not simply pretend like we can escape the, the bodily dimension here. Uh, and so that's a big part, is, is that yes, there's, there's certainly that danger that human beings, uh, the idolatry danger is real, but the biblical answer is never uh, a pure and simple rejection of creation. That's the Gnostic answer, and it doesn't work because we're st we still are. No matter what you do, you're still going to be a human being in a body uh, until you die. Um, and then when you're raised from the dead, you're going to have a body again. And so our, our goal ought to be to try to live faithfully as embodied creatures in time and space, surrounded by all kinds of pleasures um, that are meant to be uh, signposts or sunbeams that lead us back to the sun. And to the degree that they do that, we ought to receive them and welcome them. And then to the self-deception question, this is where um, God has given us a number of tools um, number of means to keep us on the path. And so that's everything from Scripture itself, um, which warns us and speaks to us clearly in our in our fallen state and, and identifies, watch out for this, watch out for that, don't believe this lie. Um, and then uh, I think um, our use of Scripture, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night, prayer, so personal kind of devotions, um, I think uh, the corporate worship, is kind of an anchor point for our week in the same way that personal devotions is an anchor point for our day um, that are designed to kind of root us in. We love God. God is more important than everything. And then, having anchored ourselves, it's now go live. Tethered to the truth, but go live. Um, and then this is where our, our lives of self-denial, there are good, there are times, fasting, for example, there are times when you should deny yourself good things for the sake of ultimate things. And then generosity. Um, you know, do you, are you a hoarder? Do you just take and take and take and then sit on it, um, enjoy it for yourself? Or do you receive what you receive and then seek to spread to others, to be, to do good and to love others? And then suffering, um, that, you know, if, if all else fails, God will, um, do Job on you. Um, and, and the, uh, the sufferings that we experience in this life are designed to really put our confession to the test. Do you really mean it when you say the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life? Let me take it. Let me take all the things away. Do you still say he's enough? Um, and so God, God mercifully gives us voluntary sort of tests like self-denial and generosity and then involuntary tests, suffering, affliction, persecution even. And says, these are what's going to help keep Christ at the center of your enjoyment of all the other stuff. So, so the title of your new book is, is you mentioned it a couple times, Strangely Bright. And uh, I believe that's a riff on some words from the classic hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I just want to read a couple of the lines. 
The hymn goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so you, the hymn says strangely dim, the title of your book is strangely bright. So I think a question is, why are you picking a fight with, seems to be a beloved hymn that, that yep. many people resonate with. What are you getting at with that little tweak? Yep. Uh, I am, I am picking a fight. Uh, and I think, and the reason is, is because there's an ambiguity and it, the ambiguity actually I think lies in the phrase things of earth. So that was the name of the original book. So, and the relation between these books is, uh, something like things of earth is a much larger book. Um, and strangely bright's a smaller, more accessible, uh, book. It's, it's the kind of book that I hope someone who doesn't read a lot could read and, and get through. Um, but the, the message of them is very similar. And uh, that's why the titles coordinate that way. Uh, but the ambiguity of the phrase, the things of earth, is if we mean worldly things, if we mean sinful things, so things that are enjoyed wrongly, then yes, I think, okay, strangely, they go dim. Like it, they, the sin loses its luster when Jesus shows up. But there's another way in which that, that can sound like when Jesus shows up, my joy and my wife diminishes. Like, I don't enjoy my kids as much because Jesus is here. And I just think, well, that's not true. And I don't, and I don't, I don't, I doubt that, uh, I think it's Helen Lemmel is the, the hymn writer. I doubt she intended, maybe she did, uh, intended to say that legitimate delights in things of earth, like my kids, they're the things that lose their luster in, when Jesus shows up. Um, I suspect some simple things, and that's and I want to say amen to that. But I think for for us when we hear the hymn, it's it's easy to then absorb this mentality that if 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 all of the good things in my life, and I and I accent family because I think it brings it into sharp relief, uh, or friends, um, if if those aren't constantly diminishing in their importance to me, then I must not be growing in godliness. I must not be living in the light of His face, His glorious face, and. Uh, and uh, so, so I wanted to say, no, no, what, what actually happens is that when you look at Jesus, the things of earth in that family, friends, good things, they grow brighter, right? They, because they become for you what they were intended to be, which is uh, reflections of God's character and goodness and love and kindness to you. And so they shine brighter because you're now seeing God in them in a way that you weren't before Jesus showed up. And so that's the kind of riff. It is, it is clever, uh, and it's intended to be provocative. It's, it's a good way to get at, to try to um, surprisingly hit that note in the soul of, do I have a low-grade guilt that I live with because I really love my family? Or, or do I go, well, of course, they, they, want, they, they, they brighten. Like, um, one way, um, it's in Psalm 36, in your light we see light. David prays to, to, to God. In your light, we see light. So um, there's, there's this notion that in the light of God, other things are brightened, right? Other things are illuminated. Other things take on a, a new... And then there's something in Edwards said that when he became, when he was converted, he said the, his everything else changed. There was a sweetness in everything else, in the sunrise, in walk through the woods, in his family, that everything had a different tinge because he had, had a new heart. And he was tasting something in all of the things that he hadn't been tasting before. 
And that's what I'm trying to get at is that they there's a, they go strangely sweet, strangely bright. There's something, there's a quality about them that's different because the new heart sees more uh, in in the things of earth than it did before. Mm. Well, I think I think we all can kind of resonate with probably both sides of that. On the one hand, feeling such joy and uh, enjoyment in so many of the things that God has given us, the good, tangible things in our lives. Uh, but then we also maybe personally have struggled with this or seen others who, you know, they, they just, it, it, there's this idea that you, the more mature Christian is, the more focused and maybe stoic, focused on Christ and in the, the spiritual realities, the spiritual gifts that we have from God, and then kind of stoic with regard to the, the things of earth, the things that we're dealing with on a regular basis. And I wonder if that comes into particular relief when it comes to the way that we grieve loss. That seems like the flip side of this. We enjoy God's good gifts, but then we also at times lose those good gifts for various reasons, whether that's the loss of a, a spouse or a child to death or sickness, and we lose abilities that we once had. So I, I wonder, speak to the the Christian who maybe is tempted to think that the the, the mature Christian way to respond to loss is some kind of stoic, um, the quick response of, well, but I still have Jesus and, you know, I have a hope in the future so that this is okay. Yep. Yeah. That's, um, that, that is, that's one of the main animating things in the book, actually. Um, you know, I've lost, uh, my dad died back in 2013, uh, after, um, long fight with dementia and Parkinson's. And, uh, and I miss my dad and, and how you think about the things of earth will affect how you grieve, whether or not you think, like you said, um, I need to sort of take it like a man or, or not even take it like a man, take it like a quote unquote Christian hedonist, which means I don't feel it. Um, that because I, I'm so satisfied in God that the loss of, uh, this earthly relationship is no big deal. And, um, if that's what our uh, spirituality produces, I think it's it's deeply unhuman. Um, it's not it's not acknowledging the kind of being that God made us to be, and it does, it's not faithful to the Bible. When you when you look at the way that biblical characters grieve, um, you don't what you don't see you never see stoicism ever in the Bible. Um, when Job loses his kids, he just he tears his clothes and falls on the ground and just weeps. And just just sits there in agony, and um, and so and you and you and and we know he's he's not sinning and charging God with wrong. He's not blaming God, um, but he's feeling it deeply. Why? And this was a, a quotation. I don't even remember where I got it at this point, but um, it was a quotation I picked up. It hurts as much as it's worth. Okay, so how you know when you um, you know if if uh, if your car breaks down, that hurts. It's a, it's, it's a nuisance. It's going to be trouble. Um, but if you lose a child, if you lose your dad, it hurts as much as it's worth. And so how much is it worth? And if you've, if you've conditioned yourself over time to think, well, the only thing that's valuable is God and creation has zero value whatsoever, then you can't grieve because you would be, you would be out of accord. You wouldn't be valuing things according to their value. But if um, these things are meant to lead us to God, then they're incredibly valuable. And therefore, the loss of them is meant to be felt deeply as the flip side of joy. So like you said, joy is what we feel when the good thing is here 
and then sorrow is what we feel when the good thing is lost. And so whether it's Job, whether it's David and crying out again and again, how long and all of the loss that he faces. Um, I think my favorite um, and the most encouraging on this is Jesus with uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where uh, he takes Lazarus. He re deliberately refuses to go, because, and it says because he loved them. And he gets there, and you know Martha comes out to meet him. If you'd have been here, he would, he'd be alive. Mary can't even come. And, and I wonder if she's angry at Jesus because she knows if Jesus would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And, uh, and then finally, Mary comes out and she says the same thing. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And, and then they weep and then Jesus goes to the tomb and Jesus weeps. Five minutes before he's about to bring Lazarus back from the grave. Why is he weeping? Why isn't he just kind of going, wait and see? Well, because it's, it's human. It's deeply human to feel the loss and he's identifying with the loss that Mary and Martha have experienced, and then he's about to show them that nothing good is ever finally lost. Um, we get it back, and so uh, and so I think it is important um, the the low grade guilt that we feel when we enjoy things can carry over into a a, a more you know it's a, it's a insidious kind of guilt that we might feel when we grieve deeply the loss of something. Um, we feel like I must not be loving God enough. I must not be satisfied in God enough if I'm crying and if I can't get out of bed because I just lost, the, the baby died. And I just think that's, that's, un, that's unbiblical. It's not godly and we shouldn't, we shouldn't want that. There's a way to have a deep confidence that God is enough, even in the sorrow, and to not curse God, um, but to bless God and to worship through your tears um, and yet to wail and to weep and to be absolutely devastated by loss. And that's, that's again, the flip side. That, that's all bound up with how do you regard the all things? What is for the supremacy of God in all things means when the all things, especially the precious ones are lost, you cry your eyes out. Hmm. Well, Joe, thank you so much for helping us to hopefully see a little bit more clearly uh, what that faithfulness looks like. And, and as you said, helping to press into the corners of our lives this idea of Christian hedonism that is so uh, foundational to, I think, how we understand and read the Bible and, and understand our, our lives as believers. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. That was Joe Rigney on enjoying God's good gifts without idolizing them. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Strangely Bright, Can You Love God and Enjoy This World? Available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode and like the show, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.